Okay, welcome to the second episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. My name's Eric Cohn. I'm the chief film critic and a senior editor at IndieWire. And I'm joined, as always, by my partner in crime, IndieWire's editor-at-large, as well as the proprietor of the Thompson and Hollywood blog, Ann Thompson. Ann, how's it going? All good. Heading out to Palm Springs this weekend for the Short Fest, where I'm going to do a panel and a book signing and all that good stuff. It's a hard life we live as film <laughs> Yeah, we uh, closed up the uh, the LA Film Festival last night, so that was that was this that, that was a lot of stuff going on this week. You know, one of the things that I like about what we do is that we aren't really just talking about the movies that happen to be opening up, although we'll get into those, but uh, we, we have this opportunity to bring movies into the conversation either because they've already opened and they still belong in the conversation or they haven't opened yet. And so this past week, we had an opportunity to really delve into a lot of stuff that's come out already this year. I mean, it's been a really rich year for new releases. I think one of the best in a really long time. Uh, uh, Over 120 critics voted in our critics poll that we did on IndieWire, and we published the results. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel was number one. Under the Skin was number two. I thought it was a really interesting sort of overview of of kind of the the variety of movies that we've seen this year. But seeing Grand Budapest in that first place really kind of told me, given the volume of people that voted in this in this poll, that this this is a movie with with some serious staying power. I mean, it opened in the first quarter of the year, which isn't usually a time for Oscar type movies. And yet it seems to me like the sort of thing that people are going to be talking about into next year as well, a major it's so well-produced. It's so beautifully wrought. Um, I just can't imagine. I was surprised that the Academy didn't do better by Moonrise Kingdom. And, and part of it was that he wasn't campaigning. I mean, if you have Roman Coppola doing all the interviews, that's really not going to get you where you want to go. So I think this time he's gonna, it's going to definitely come, come his way and he'll get a lot of nominations. But, you know, what was interesting about that list as well is that each slot, at least of the films in the top ten, and, and listeners can obviously go to our uh, our site and check them out for themselves, they they fill different niches in the film world. I mean, Under the Skin is, is, is a very bizarre midnight movie kind of experience, and I think there was almost something like with Eraserhead where there was just this sort of impulse that you just had to see this weird movie. And, and it's critics, original. It, it took him 10 years to, to make it, and he, he made some choices that resulted in images that you've simply never seen before, and we don't get enough of that. Sure, and then there's something like Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive, which is just very much a Jim Jarmusch movie like we haven't seen, I think, in a long time. The best we've seen in a long time, in my humble opinion. The most entertaining, the most enjoyable, the most Jarmusch. It's so Jarmusch. That's what I love about it. Driving around Detroit and, uh, you know, these incredibly dissipated, attractive vampire lovers. You know, I loved it. It's great. I mean, I, to me, it's like exactly what you would expect people who have been around that long to do. They're not going around stalking people or falling into desperate love affairs. They're drinking wine and talking philosophy like a lot of characters in Jarmusch movies tend to do. So it was just really in tune with his traditions. You know, but then there were also some interesting films on there uh, that that are completely outside of the, the kind of typical film critic type of movie if you were to, to sort of you know, put that tag on certain things that attract uh, critical acclaim. I mean, you have the Lego movie, which came in at number five, which means a lot of people are supporting that movie. And then something like Stranger by the Lake, which is this 
very bizarre, divisive, gay thriller that was at Cannes last year. And then in number nine, The Raid 2, and number 10, Nymphomaniac Volume 1. So when I you, when put that on my 10 best. I had both of the Nymphomaniacs on there. And by the way, there's another list over at Thompson on Hollywood if you want to check it out from our from our contributors uh, listing our ten bests uh, of the year so far. And we just added one uh, that did have Lego Movie on it. <laughs> our readers were like, "Why didn't you like Lego Movie?" You know. <laughs> I thought it was very funny, but it doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that would get this degree of critical acclaim. You know, I mean, there's just so much stuff out there. I mean, and I'm I'm glad to see one animated movie in the top ten right now. But it's but it's it's interesting because you know How to Train Your Dragon Two is a movie that we I talked love. about last week. It's something that that seems to have gotten a strong response. But Lego Movie, which when, on paper sounds like just a terrible idea. Even the first materials made me think it would be just awful, and I was driven by the great reviews to go to go check it out. And of course, it's it's delightful. I, I have issues with it in in some ways that we talked about last week with Twenty Two Jump Street, which I hadn't seen yet, but when I saw it, it did confirm those issues. Where as long as a movie sort of acknowledges that it's this big corporate commercial entity, it can get away with making fun of those things. And to me, the Lego movie is unquestionably a commercial for Legos and a celebration of Legos in very much a brand satisfactory fashion. And yet it's it's a little bit like um, the Avengers in the sense that the writers understand the characters so well and and do do not violate who they should be. And, and, And so that inside knowledge of these characters, these iconic characters like Batman, you know, it's really funny, you know? It's very funny. I guess for me, I'm always looking to be challenged and surprised by things, and so I tend to back away from that sort of product. But, you know, one of the things that was interesting about publishing this list is that there, it's, we just know it's going to change radically in just another couple of, of weeks and months as other things open up and qualify at least one movie I know is going to be a major contender for a top slot on this list, and that's Richard Linkletter's Boyhood. You did some events with Linkletter at LAFF over here in New York. After the LAFF premiere, Linkletter showed up, and I moderated a talk with him at 92Y, and it's just very clear to me as we see this movie slowly start to get out into the world just how well-received it's going to be. I mean, shot over the course of 12 years, it, it tracks this child growing from ages 5 to, to 19. I mean, it's not only the richest thing that Linkletter's done, in my opinion, I think that it consolidates everything he's done up until this point in terms he of He likes to play and, with time, and yeah. he, he's, he's somebody who's an innovator in the best sense of the word, he figured out that he could do this, and he managed to persuade IFC to give him $200,000 for each year, and they shot for three to five days. And so these people were in a family. They were in a group. It was like they reconvened every summer, Patricia Arquette and Ethan Hawke, who was, of course, an old um, Linkletter veteran, and and uh, Eller Cotrain, who had the extraordinary experience of actually growing up on film and and it just psychologically to think about what he went through I mean you 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 talked to him I talked to him last week also it 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 struck me that he is still processing and still dealing yes it's it's an amazing first role that itself is unprecedented and and his next step as an actor will be fascinating to watch if indeed it happens but I think what's also interesting about the movie itself is that 
you know, it really is an experimental narrative. There is no traditional three-act structure here. It's, it's a challenging proposition, and even though when you watch it, it flows very naturally, and it is accessible. That being said, I'm really curious about certain expectations in play for this movie. I mean, I saw the, the sales agent, John Sloss, who has an executive producing credit on the film at uh, our, our conversation in New York, and I could kind of tell that, you know, him and, and some of the other people involved in the production are really really pushing hard for this to be a big movie. You're right. What's going to what's happening now and this is what needs to play out. They should be careful, I think, because um what's happening now is that there's so many rave reviews about the movie surrounding the movie and people haven't seen it yet that there are expectations that are being set very very high and the film is actually a quiet non-eventful movie. It is not a hugely it's not full of huge dramatic moments. It is emotional and cumulatively what fascinating. It really struck me as I was waiting to do the interview. I was reading the press kit, and at the end of the press kit, there's this. There, there was this moment where Linkletter and the people they're they're talking about how emotional it was on the last day of filming. That that after twelve years, they were, and I got emotional. I actually got the the actual end shot of the movie. The last shot of the movie was the last one filmed. As I thought about it, I uh, I choked up. Now that is not normal, and and very many people who see the film do experience a strong emotional reaction because it's about life. It's about what we all live. It's a very rich movie on a, on a number of levels, but it's impossible to prepare somebody for something like that without allowing them to kind of lose themselves in the experience. You know, to expect something that's going to really challenge you is the wrong way to go into this movie. To expect a a movie that was made in a different way and just let it kind of take you somewhere is, is probably a better way of thinking about it. That being said, I remember at South by Southwest, I ran into a distributor that was when the film kind of had its big homecoming. It had premiered at Sundance, but obviously it was in Austin. And, and a distributor from another company told me they thought this movie was going to make $5 million. Now, a movie like I this... I don't think that's true. I think this will be very successful in a much grander, bigger scale. But I know why that person said that. They said that because the movie feels... In a weird, in a way, it feels small. It's a small-scale Talking Heads movie without a lot of events, a lot of action. Not much goes on, but it 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 reminds us of how powerful a family drama can be when it reaches into your heart. Let's talk uh, hard facts here. Is this a is this a movie that could get a best? picture nomination. I do think so. But again, they have to be careful. The critics are going to be behind it in a big way. Audiences are going to be behind it. I think it will play. And I think there will be curiosity again. This has the advantage of of being... um, I mean, part of the reason why the Before Midnight series, uh, the Before Sunset, Before Sunrise, Before Midnight, they did not do as well as, as you would think, is that a lot of people hadn't seen all three of them. And because they came out from different distributors, there wasn't a concerted um, a push to, to remind everyone of, of, of the other. Until very late, they tried to, they did put on a few shows where you, you, you could see all three films. And so they, the, the final film was limited by how many people had seen the prior two. This doesn't have that limitation. This is a, a, a one-time experience, and I, I believe um, that, that people will, will want 
to, to experience it themselves. Well, I defer to you on the Oscar expertise. I will say as, as a critic and, and someone who talks to a lot of other critics, it is a strong contender for the best reviewed movie of the year. And it's, I think, something where when you do this for a living, you advocate for movies, this is where the job starts to really make a difference because there are some movies people aren't going to watch no matter how much you tell them it's worth their time. This is a movie that I think people will, and it could actually change the way that they relate to how movies are made and what makes a movie work. Now let, let's move on because I want to talk about one movie that I don't think will make our top ten list at the end of the year, and that's Clint Eastwood's Jersey Boys. It's opening today. It closed the LAFF, so you saw it. Last night, Last I night. assume. Uh, I saw it a couple of days ago, and I personally was nonplussed. Tell me your take. Basically, I saw the show. It was a big hit on Broadway. I love the music. I grew up with the music, so I have a very powerful emotional you know, uh, connection to, to all those songs. And um, uh, I think Clint was invested heavily in the music, and he, he really clearly uh, put his energy there. I think he made a huge mistake casting... Um, is his name John Lloyd? John um, Lloyd Young. Part of the problem. I don't know this guy except he was great on. He was really great in the in the show, but he's not a movie actor who the camera loves. Let's right. just be not to put too fine a point on it. And so you have a two hour fifteen minute movie and he's the lead. That's a that's a problem. Even if he sings like a dream. So the, what happens is that the movie comes to life every time they start to perform. But in between, the other actors are are more uh, telegenic than than he is, and and that's and Chris Walken, you know, or you know, and and so the the movie, and also they use the same um, writers who wrote the book the book for the play to to adapt the screenplay, you know, including you know a, a, an experienced screenwriter, Marshall Brickman, but it it doesn't work the structure, the same structure, the each of the actors talking to to the screen and telling their version of the story Rashomon style it's it's an artificial thing that does pop, you know takes you out of the movie so i mean this is um this is this is a straight on old fashioned period you know old kind of movie and and it's already being um described as a as a flop which is one reason why uh, Warner Brothers scheduled it in June. This is not going to be in the Oscar uh, discussion. Not going to be in the Oscar discussion, I think deservedly so. In some ways, it's, it's actually Eastwood's worst uh, movie in, in a really long time, not only because of uh, John Lloyd Young and some of the other performances, I think, that, that just don't work in a cinematic framework, but also just because it felt sort of bland to me for what it was. You know, the, the music, yeah, the music's great. The music sustains each scene where the music happens. That does not happen for the first 45 minutes or so of the movie. And so it, I think it weakens the impact of, of, of the film that, to not really realize the reason for a project like this in the first place, to celebrate the music, to let it be part of the experience. And I think critics are going a little soft on the movie because they think there's something better going on beneath the surface. You well, get... I think it plays better for older um, people who are really fond of the, of the music and, and who, don't, who aren't judging it. Beyond that, I think that it's not a movie that even an older audience is necessarily excited to see. I mean, there are other things out there, certainly other things on the horizon this year that seem to me like more mature movies that an audience can get excited about. 
there will be some fans for the music, but um, I, I think this also, I still think that decision, that one decision, that crucial decision on who played the lead, uh, really made that's come on give, give some credit to Clint Eastwood for screwing up it's okay he, he can take <laughs> he some screwed credit up the casting <laughs> I mean you know the guy's infallible in theory but in practice it's a different story no. uh, so so let's talk about some of the stuff on the horizon you know the things that we're excited about because we have the fall season to look forward to now with with the Los Angeles Film Festival behind us really the next big film festival experience going on in, in, in this country anyways is the Telluride Film Festival over Labor Day weekend, which will sort of pitch right into Toronto and all these Oscar type of movies. So we're we're pretty close to, to all that happening, wouldn't you say? Yeah, what's going on right now is that the distributors are and filmmakers are submitting their films and showing them to Telluride and Toronto, which have um, new rules to play by this year. And so it's going to be very interesting to see, for example, if, if Sony Pictures Classics had about seven films in Cannes, you know, we usually we would expect most of those films to play both of those festivals. And now that Toronto is demanding that you can't have an opening weekend berth uh, unless you are the North American premiere, you know, these, these distributors can't have it both ways. They're going to have to make a decision about whether they want to break with the elite media that are in, uh, in Telluride, uh, including you and me, um, you know, making all those declarations early in advance of Toronto, or whether they want to wait for the bigger play in Toronto. And the distributors are not happy about it. They're pissed off. I have to sympathize with them. I think it's a severe miscalculation on the part of Toronto to, to try to force Telluride not to have these world premieres. Because frankly, look, 12 Years a Slave was, was a sneak peek at, at Telluride. And, and a couple of us who were in the room did say it was an Oscar movie. But when Steve McQueen went on the Oscar campaign, he did not thank Telluride. He thanked Toronto for giving that movie the profile it needed. I don't think that Toronto is actually hurt in any regard except for this sort of bizarre notion of exclusivity that's not really impacting the movies or the profile of the festivals at all. They, I understand their point of view, especially last year, those two movies, it was also Gravity that debuted um, in Telluride, and you had this whole rash of press coming out of Telluride, declaring it the Oscar contender, declaring both of them, and so they came into Toronto with this huge head of steam, and from the point of view of, of the festival, they, they, they were no longer you know, introducing those films, they couldn't claim that they were. I think that there that it'll be very interesting. I think what'll happen in practice is that the is that Searchlight also um, has said, has you know Birdman coming up, and uh, they have the Drop, you know, Wild, and and there's are three films that that are going to be up for both festivals, and and they're going to have to figure out you know which one goes to Telluride and which one goes to Toronto, unless they are willing to play in the sec you know after the first weekend, which right. is fine. Right, which, I mean, and all of this, I think, is, is kind of irrelevant to some degree if you're just a general moviegoer, except that it can really have an impact on the sort of movies that grab your attention. Now, Fox Searchlight is a very smart distributor, and I think that they will probably make the right choice here. It's a question of how it's going to impact how these festivals operate and the various relationships of, of other people in the industry that I think is really interesting. Now, you mentioned Birdman. 
the trailer for that came out earlier this week. In fact, we had a, a listener last week who asked us to address it, so we would like to indulge that person and talk about that, but also because it is a movie that I think will be an interesting one to watch on the fall festival circuit. You know, this is the uh, the latest from Alejandro González Iñárritu, who did films like Babel and 21 Grams, but it looks very different. I mean, uh, Michael Keaton starring as this sort of or actor who played a, an iconic superhero uh, trying to do a Broadway show. The the uh, trailer, at least to me, looked very different from Iñárritu's other films, which are usually very grim and sort of uh, complicated ensemble dramas that, that haven't... Uh, really crossed over in the way that this one looked like it might. Yeah, this is his follow-up to, to Beautiful, and um, it's uh, set in New York, which is a different uh, setting also. It's Naomi Watts and Michael Keaton and Edward Norton and, and Emma Stone, who I like very much. It's a great cast. And Zach Galifianakis, um, which is Yes, exactly. And, and it looks like also he's dealing with the... Uh, the sort of crisis that you can have as an artist, uh, you know, when you're trying to figure out who you are and, and where you've been. Uh, it, it, it looks dark and it looks comedic. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, Inuritu's films have never really worked for me before. I was pretty down on Beautiful. I know you, you liked it more. I'm a but... big fan of his. I think he reaches for a kind of authenticity and, and emotional depth with his actors that very few directors uh, achieve. Um, you have to be willing to go there. Um, I think Beautiful challenged people because it was just so unrelentingly dark. But also it had a melodramatic quality that, that is um, very uh, Spanish. And I think, I think that, that people didn't understand that. They didn't get yeah, the tone. Maybe I didn't get the tone. I'm pretty sure I saw him reaching. I guess my, my problem is that I don't like the reaching. You know, it's, 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 it's a little too transparent for me. But, but again, I'm holding out hopes for this movie it seems like it, there, there's something tonally that could be exciting about it, and certainly Michael Keaton's overdue. But let's let's back up a little bit. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We should really talk about the movies opening this week and, and the ones that we want to single out. Neither of us are big fans of Jersey Boys, but fortunately there's some other stuff that people can check out instead. So what's your number one? Venus and Fur is a new film from, from Roman Polanski based on a, a play and starring his wife, um, Emmanuel Signet, and it's surprising. Uh, it played in Cannes, but it came at the very end of the festival, and it didn't get that much attention there. But so I, I went in not with high expectations, and really found it fascinating. It's dealing with power dynamics between men and women. It's about the artistic process. It's about acting and putting it on and taking off different persona. And it's also about S&M and the power dynamics of S&M, mm-hmm. which is, by the way, what Fifty Shades of Grey, which is coming up later, is also about. So I found, uh, and it is a lot like a play, you know, there's two people and, and the other is Mathieu Amaric, who, who I love and who happens to resemble Polanski in a kind of puckish, interesting way. Um, and I, I just was completely uh, taken with this movie. How about you? Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a good time. It's, it's, it's a lot more entertaining than I think some of the reviews suggest. It's this very basic two-hander carried by the actors. It's not a major Polanski film, but it is entertaining. I, I, I'm a little more off the beaten track as usual. My, my two picks for this week are a very low-budget science fiction film called Coherence, which is sort of like the new primer. It's this bizarre physics head uh, sort of puzzle involving a group of people who get stuck uh, in 
multiple universes at once after a comet passes over their dinner party. And so they end up traveling around their neighborhood, seeing different versions of themselves and trying to figure out if all of those versions are going to collapse into one singularity. So that's a very basic way of boiling it down. But you have to see this thing multiple times to really kind of understand what's going on. And that's what I love about it. It's a, it's very rich and, and also funny. It's got some great characters in it as well. Um, the other movie I want to single out is Exhibition. It's from a British director named Joanna Hogg, who's made a couple of films and has gotten some attention over there, but uh, hasn't really taken off in the U.S. in quite the same way. Kino Lorber is releasing that movie in, in sort of a slow, uh, limited fashion, but uh, it's something that's definitely worth checking out. Uh, the way that I described it in my review is that it's sort of like Michael Haneke meets Miranda July. It's about a, a woman who, who lives in this very large, expansive house and, and sort of feels like the walls are closing in on her. I wouldn't say she loses her mind, but she does go to some kind of bizarre extremes. In any case, it, it's, it's very different, and yet I think, I think as we were talking about with Boyhood, there is certain, sort of a universal emotional quality to it that makes it more accessible than you might think. So definitely track down exhibition. Not a movie that people are going to be talking about throughout the year, but but I certainly would love to see a couple more people discover it. But, you know, again, we live in a very particular kind of world, and the rest of the world is, is probably talking about the bigger movies that are opening up and the bigger things going on in the industry. And I think thinking about that stuff really brings up the final segment that we need to delve into here, which unofficially we're calling Nikki Watch. The lingering status of the... Journalist formerly known as Nikki Fink. What are we calling her these days? You know, in advance of this call, I actually went back and looked over her output for, for the past week. And it isn't like she's really the topic of discussion right now. Um, she took two days off to deal with her legal problems with Jay Penske. Right, um, so Jay Penske, the owner of Variety and Deadline, told her that she had a non-compete clause and tried to keep her from posting. And her argument uh, that she's backed up by with her lawyers is that he was supposed to pay her some enormous sum, uh, you know, on such and such a date. And if he didn't do that, that she was therefore free uh, to go on her her merry uh, way. And they've been negotiating behind the scenes. And um, I had reported that that I had heard that she wasn't willing to just do a column, which is what everybody wanted her to do. But it turns out they actually offered her a deal that they they they, they ended up having a, a debate among themselves, the different people at Deadline, uh, as to whether they actually wanted to work with her again. There was division in the ranks, and uh, some of them were supporting her and coming back as a columnist, and some of them were not. And so in the end, she was actually voted off the island by her own team. And of course, that's really got a sting for anybody, especially somebody as, as competitive and, and sort of ego-driven as Nikki Fink appears to be. We're still talking about Nikki's weird legal problems. When are we going to start talking about Nikki's actual role in the film business? Are we just Who says we care about it? I don't care about it. I don't read her that much. I don't think a lot of people are paying much attention to her right now. And the, the uh, one thing I noticed is she was writing about how Jersey Boys was tanking. And the point I would make is that you and I go to the trouble of seeing these movies. And she just speculates about what might be wrong with it or what might, one reason why it didn't do well or why it's tanking. And, and I, 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 that has always struck me about her. How can someone really analyze the box office without having seen the films? 
Well, Nikki, if you're listening to this, don't go see Jersey Boys. Go see Exhibition. That's my plug. <laughs> Maybe it'll have an impact. Who knows? Who knows? Well, Ann, it's always a pleasure. And uh, we'll do this again the same time next week. How about it?